0: I don't think my mom is here yet, so I'll reserve my greeting till next service. <laughs> mm-hmm. Awesome. I want to talk to you this morning about a well, little something I've been thinking about lately. I want to talk to you this morning about stories, imagination, and scripture. This is not going to be a series, though I may come back to it sometime in the fall to do a series. Sort of something I've been rolling around with for a bit, but I think it's actually really important for us. And before we get into what I really want to talk about, I want to set it up with one of my favorite stories in the Bible. Why don't we, why don't we put this up? This is part of the story of Jacob. You guys remember Jacob? I think Jacob's the best story in Genesis. Um, that's just my opinion. You can have another opinion. It'd be wrong, but you could have another opinion. And this is one little moment from the life of Jacob. This is when Jacob is running away from his brother. Y'all remember this? And he's running, and he gets tired, and in the middle of the night he decides to lay down. This is what happens. So in verse 10, it says that Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. And he came to a certain place and he stayed there the night because the sun had set. And taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and he lay down in that place to sleep. Now you know you're tired when you're using rocks as pillows, right? And he dreamed and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. Now imagine how personal that would have been. The Lord is talking about his grandfather and his daddy. And the land on which you lie, I will give to you and your offspring. And your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth. And you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place and I didn't know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God and this is the gate of heaven. I love this. I love the story of Jacob. Like I said, it's probably my favorite story in the whole book of Genesis. And this is one of my favorite parts in Jacob's story. The reason it's one of my favorite parts in the story of Jacob is because of everything that happened right up to this point when he lays down on a rock and goes to sleep. If you remember the story, here's what's happened up to this point. Right before Jacob takes off running and uses a rock as a pillow, he's tricked his brother Esau not once, but twice. He cheated his brother out of his father's blessing and out of his birthright. And not only that, but the second trick that he pulled over on his brother wasn't just just deceit aimed at Esau, but it was also deceit aimed at his father Jacob. Now we're talking about an extremely patriarchal society, and he, he and his mother come up with this scheme. They say, you know what? I know I'm the younger and I shouldn't get the father's blessing. The father's blessing goes to the firstborn son. But we're going to trick Isaac because Isaac is almost blind. And Jacob, you're not very hairy. And Jacob, you don't like to go out and hunt the game like Esau does. Esau's hairy and he likes to go out and he likes to hunt wild game. And Isaac has a taste for game. So why don't we do this? I'll kill one of the little goats. You take the goat fur and put it on your arms and you put on Esau's clothes so you smell like them and you go into Je- you'll go into Isaac and Isaac will think that you're Esau and he'll give you the blessing. And somehow Isaac is so blind that he thinks that goat skins on Jacob's arms are in fact Esau's arms and he thinks that the clothes are actually Esau's clothes and he gives him the father's blessing. So he not only tricks his brother once but he tricks him twice And in doing so, also lies to his father. And by the way, when Isaac speaks the blessing over Jacob, the younger brother's life, it's a thing that couldn't be undone. This is really important. It couldn't be undone. So after this, Esau finds out what's happening, and Esau decides in his heart... He is extremely angry. And um, Jacob's mother comes to him and says, hey, you you ought to get out of here. Uh, Esau is only consoling himself with the thought of killing you. And so Jacob takes off running. And so when we have this little story here that we saw about Jacob falling asleep, he's running. He's running for his life. And I also think he's tired, not just because he's been running all day, probably physically across the desert, but I also think he's just emotionally tired. Anybody here ever lied to someone? (laughs) You know the emotional fatigue that comes from lying? Now imagine that you've lied twice, not only to your brother, but you've actually lied to your father. Imagine the emotional fatigue that would be in your body, and then you're running. And so he falls asleep. I love this story. And when he falls asleep, he has a dream. And in the dream, he sees a ladder that reaches from heaven to earth, and the angels of God are going up and down. And then he heard God tell him in the dream... That he could have the same promises that his grandfather and his father had been promised. Land and offspring. And I love what Jacob says the next morning. Surely we go, surely, God was here and I didn't know it. I don't know about you. How many of you can identify this? How many of you have ever had moments where God was at work or God was in the room or God was in the activity and you didn't know it till later? It's like, gosh, that's such a normal human thing. Surely God was here and I didn't know it. How many times have we stumbled into holy moments underwear? And you get the sense that God had waited until Jacob had gone to sleep because that was the only moment that Jacob was vulnerable to the Spirit. Sometimes God will use dreams... Probably the second most common way that the Lord speaks to people in the scripture is through dreams. And I'm convinced that the reason he uses dreams so often is, it's the only time we're actually vulnerable to the spirit. Especially a person like Jacob, right? He's a liar and a cheater and a trickster and basically a terrible person. And God had to choose the one moment that he was vulnerable to the spirit, which was when he was asleep and he gives him an amazing dream. But before we go too far down that path... If we're honest, we'd have to admit that this story we just read leaves us with more questions than answers. And the big question, if we're a meditative person at all, the big question that a scripture like we just read, a story like we just read, raises is this. What kind of God would give a God encounter, a dream, and would give promises to a dirty, rotten, cheating, lying, trickster shark? Right? If you read the story of Jacob, he's not a good person. He's a terrible person. He lies and he cheats, and he lies and cheats to the people closest to him. And here's what we've got we've got a story where a lying cheater to the person who's closest to him, his brother and his father. We got a story where God comes to that guy in his dream, gives him a God encounter and not an angel, but God himself speaks to him and said, everything I've promised to your father and to your grandfather, I'm promising to you as well. I'll never leave you until I've done it all. And the thing that story really has to cause us to wonder is, what kind of God are we dealing with here? Who does that? This is the sort of story which kills the notion that God is coming to the good, the prayerful, or the altruistic. See, one of the things we've got in church right now is we've got... Certain uh, parts of the church, we've got, these, uh, we've got these concepts that say if you pray for God encounters, those are the people that God will come to. He comes to people who pray to God encounters. Uh, he comes to holy people and he comes to the good people. Uh, God comes and gives God encounters and makes promises to people who have done everything right in their life and who pray and who fast and who, uh, who are good to other people and who are generous. Actually, what the scripture says is that you can be a lying, thieving, cheat, rotten, no good shark and get a God encounter. It's pretty good news. What kind of God does that? It's not that we shouldn't pray for encounters, but know this, God might just, might just show himself to a thief. I've said all of that to get us to this point. This is actually the invitation of the scriptures. It's the invitation of the scriptures to slowly, day by day, find out just who is this God we're dealing with. Who is this God we're dealing with? And it's for that reason I want to talk this morning about loving the Scriptures. I want to talk about loving the Scriptures this morning. And I want to talk about peering through the window. Because this is what the Scriptures are. They're a window into another world. And I want to talk about being formed by God's story. The first thing that we need to capture this morning, aside from the fact that the Scripture is filled with stories that flip all of our notions of who God likes right on their heads. The first thing we need to capture this morning is that God is a storyteller. God's a storyteller. I want you to imagine that crazy uncle. Uh, Nearly every family in in the world, in the earth, has a crazy uncle, and you maybe only see him twice a year, probably at Thanksgiving, maybe at Easter, perhaps Christmas, or maybe Fourth of July and uh, he's the guy who sits at the dinner table and maybe has one too many Budweiser's and kills the whole family with his crazy stories. You guys have that uncle in your family? I do. Or maybe it's your granddaddy, or, or maybe your grandma. You know, just, Who's that person in your story who just, who just lets it rip, tells stories, kills the whole family? It's sort of like the, it's the entertainment. Everybody have one of those? Yeah, everybody's got one of those. That's who I want you to imagine right now, because that's who God is. He's the guy who is telling stories. He's a storyteller. One of my favorite things to do when I was a kid was to ask my grandma about depression days. Do you guys have a grandmother who ever told you about depression days? I was fascinated by it. And she was pleased to tell me. So I would go to... I would go to Mama's house and Mama always had... A lot of candy and she was born she was born in she was before she was born i think what 1917 am i right yeah 1917 and she lived through the depression and when she came through the depression it wasn't when she was real little but but she came through formational years so it would have been like it would have been that time when you're sort of like coming of age or getting some sense of what the world was like and then you go through the depression which was totally crazy and 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 Meemaw had stories about bootleggers, and she had, because it was Prohibition days, uh, and she had stories about like, uh, uh, all kinds of crazy things that the family had to do just to make it. Uh, and then uh, I'd love to talk to my grandmother Russell about uh, World War II days, and uh, like, you had to get ration stamps just to go get sugar. And, you know, amazing stories. Like People have endured stuff in our country, you know? Like, it's unbelievable just the wealth of stories. And the reason I want you to get connected to whoever that person is, is I want you to get connected to that person because that's who God is. He's this storytelling God. I want you to think about your favorite movie. I want you to think about your favorite novel or maybe your favorite album. See, all of these things and all of these people, all the storytellers, are pointing to a more substantial reality. And that reality is God himself. God is a storyteller. And it is God as storyteller and it is the stories that he has told and continues to tell which provide the creative spark which has become in some ways a great forest fire of creative telling and listening. And this is why every single person in the room loves listening to stories and every single person in the room loves to tell a story. Like one of the things that makes a human a human is our obsession with stories it's the reason why we are a movie obsessed culture it's the reason why some of you love novels it's the reason why you love hanging out with that crazy uncle on thanksgiving who's going to tell some bizarre story and embarrass someone else at the table it's the reason why we love to listen to stories and we love to tell them and the reason we do is because god our father is in fact a storyteller Not only do you and I love to listen and tell the stories, but one of the things that human beings do, and we do this unconsciously. We just do this. No one had to teach you to do this, and in fact, we're not even aware we do this, but we arrange the events of our life into a narrative. And one of the ways that we find meaning, uh, we're always looking for meaning. So every event contains some thread of meaning, and you and I are weaving All of these events, the good things that happen in our life, the really bad things that happen in our life, the boring stuff, we're arranging it into this greater narrative and we're looking for the ways in which maybe this one thing means something or maybe this one event is connected to another event. Have you noticed that you do that? You and I are looking for themes and you and I are looking for connections between characters and you and I are obsessed with time and place. You don't, no one had to teach you to be obsessed with time and place. We just are. It's what it means to be human. Uh, one of the ways that you know that we are like this is when we first meet somebody for the first time, what's the first thing you ask them? You've never met them. What do you ask them? What's your name? Who are you? Where are you from? What do you do? Who are your parents? When were you born? How old are you? These are, the, these are the kinds of things that we ask one another. You meet somebody and you hang out for a few minutes. These are the very first things that are going to come up. What are we trying to connect to? Their story. We're connecting to time, place, history. And not only are we doing that, but we're looking for the ways in which this person might be more significant to my story than I thought they were. We're looking for the connecting points. It's what we do. And so all of these questions that we ask someone when we first meet them, they make the framework of any decent story. And the reason we do this is because our Heavenly Father is a master author. All of this brings us to the Scripture. And the very first thing I'd like to say about the Scripture is this, that Scripture is God's story. And because Scripture is God's story, the very worst thing that a person could do is to think about the Scripture as some sort of a holy book. In my opinion... In turn. In my opinion, the worst thing you could do with the Bible is to only think of it as a holy book. It kills it. Here's why I'm thinking of Scripture as simply a holy book... We'll kill it for you. Um, there is there is this little program that runs underneath the thought of the Bible is a holy book. And the program that runs at a subconscious level for you and I is, if it's holy, I can't approach it. I'm convinced that one of the reasons that people don't approach Scripture and deal with it and and consume it and feed on it and meditate is this notion that the Scripture is a holy book And you and I know at some deep level that we are lacking some kind of a holiness. And because of that, we just separate ourselves and we distance ourselves from the text that could actually change us into new kinds of people. I think this thought actually doesn't help us. That isn't to say that the scripture isn't holy. I just don't think that's what it mostly is. The other thing that won't help us uh, when it comes to um, dealing with the scriptures is making the mistake that the scriptures are an instruction manual. I think the two things, the two big narratives that are at work in America when it comes to the scripture is, number one, this idea that the scriptures are this holy book, and number two, that the scriptures are an instruction manual. Uh, That'll kill you. The reason that the scriptures as instruction manual um, will kill you is because as soon as you make the Bible a manual, it it, it basically drains all the blood out of the text, and every single person becomes a two-dimensional cartoon. Not only that, but it it makes those determined enough to relate to it as an instruction manual, rigid and legalistic. You ever met someone who knew the Bible front and back and they were rigid and legalistic? Rather than having the life of any of the characters, they've actually become something else, more robotic, judgmental, the kind of person who could whip you with the Bible, really unlike Jesus whatsoever. I'm convinced that one of the reasons that people become rigid and legalistic is because they've bought into the lie that the Bible is mostly an instruction manual and that you can find everything you need for life in it. This isn't to say that the Bible doesn't have some instructions, but that's not mostly what it is. It is not mostly a holy book, and it is not mostly an instruction manual. Here's the problem with going to the Bible to get answers. Uh, If you go to the Scriptures to get answers... The problem is, you're mostly just going to get people. Far less than offering answers, the Bible offers people. And by the way, the people that you run into are almost never moral exemplaries. (laughs) Almost never. You guys remember the story of Noah, right? Noah got hammered. I mean, Noah got drunk, not a little bit drunk, Noah got hammered. He got so hammered, he was in his tent naked. Now, how drunk do you have to be? And this is like the guy, right? This is is the guy God's like, I'm going to work with this guy. Hammered, totally hammered, naked in a tent. Abraham was a liar. Jacob was a cheater. And David, the man after God's own heart, was a murderer and an adulterer. Here's the problem with going to the Bible as answers. You're going to get people instead of answers. And the people you get are not perfect. And so what you really find in the scripture is, you find God at work. And this is the part where I start getting hope. You find God at work with people who are really not that great. People just like you and I. Drunks, adulterers, and liars. I'd say we have some drunks, some adulterers, and some thieves in the room. And if you find yourself in any of those categories, the good news is that the God of the Bible is more than willing to work through you. See, what you find in the Scripture is a God who is quite capable of taking something ugly and making something beautiful. See, the Scripture... What it really is, it's the magnificent story about how God intersected the lives of people who had other plans. That's what you really get in the Bible. The Bible is not mostly a holy book, and it's not mostly an instruction manual. It's mostly God intersecting the lives of people who had some other plan. Like really average, weak people had other plans. And it's not about the good people who earn God's delight. It's about the terrible people that God redeemed. It's about ragamuffin renegades. This is the phrase I've been getting all week. Ragamuffin renegades who cheated their brother twice, lied to their father, and had a God encounter. I love that. I totally love that. Some of the people that God has used the most in history never prayed that God would use them. Some of the people that God has used most in history were lying cheats who were looking for a dollar. God came into their life. So it's not about, the scripture is not some moralistic text about how to be nice. That's one of the things that the church has tried to make the scripture. It's, oh, it's how to be nice, it's how to be good. No, it's really not. It's about how really awful people who were in some, some terrible spots or had other plans got absorbed into God and got absorbed into his story. So the Scripture is this very long, rambling story with all sorts of fits and starts. Scripture is the good stuff, the bad stuff, the regular stuff, the boring stuff, all fitted and held together by God. And Scripture is the beginning of a story that is continuing to this very day in our own lives. Uh, One of the things I would like to suggest to you and I this morning is this, that as you and I begin to love the Scriptures, not only do we begin to see what God has done in history, but it will begin to illuminate what God is doing now. When I was a kid, Bible reading was mostly guilt-induced. Maybe some people in the room can identify with what I'm talking about. Uh, Maybe you've had pastors or preachers basically spend 30 or 40 minutes trying to guilt people into reading their Bibles, right? Well, yeah. That's what it was for me when I was growing up. Scripture was, was the thing you do it, you read it because it's good. Like there was really nothing else. Just you know, it's a good thing to do, or uh, you do it to keep God happy. This is one of the little narratives that was always sort of present. Anytime someone talked about the scripture when I was growing up, you read it to keep God happy. Now, there's nowhere in the Bible that says if you read the if you read his scripture, that it'll, he'll be happy with you. And there's nowhere that says if you don't, he'll be angry with you. But it was just sort of the subtext. And maybe some of you all know what I'm talking about. You've got to read your Bible. You need to read it every day so he'll be happy with you. And if you don't, if you miss like two days in a row, then you're 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 beginning to come out of orbit. And you may get lost in deep space, right? Like forever gone. Or, scripture is something that you... That you that you grab hold of when you really need an answer. Like you haven't read the scripture in six months, but like you don't have any money in the bank account, and now I'm looking for a verse, right? I call this Russian roulette. S- scriptural Russian roulette. You don't even you don't even know what this thing is, but man, you're looking for a verse. And and now we got our iPhone, so we just like type in like money verses. You know? <laughs> You guys are laughing because you've done it, right? (laughs) We've all done that. We've played scriptural Russian roulette. We just spin the wheel, you know, pray for sevens. The truth is, though, if we can be honest just for a second, if we can be honest, sometimes it's hard to find a life in the scriptures. And I think there's a couple reasons why... For some of us in the room, it's hard to find a life in the scriptures. And the first reason that I think is real common for a lot of people is that we don't think that the scriptures are relevant. We've either tried to approach it as a holy book or an instruction manual and got tired. But then there's this other thing, this other little subtext that operates in some of our brains And some of us just think, well, it's just not relevant. It's like when I read it, it's about a bunch of people who lived like two or 3,000 years ago. It's like ancient history. It's another culture. It just doesn't apply. It's like, it's just a bunch of like simple warring tribes who want to kill each other, you know? And I'm not into that. Anybody ever had that thought? I mean, I did. I'm just like, oh, man. But one of the things that I've really begun to realize over my years of encountering the scriptures is that there's nothing more relevant anywhere and in fact you can go to some of the most barbaric texts in the bible the ones that seem so far removed from any of our daily lives and certainly so far removed from any of the sort of life that you or i would want to live and we can find that it's extremely extremely relevant Uh, i'll mention one passage in particular Uh, you guys remember uh, judges chapter 11 from last summer i think it may be the worst chapter in the whole bible because judges 11 is the story of jephthah Okay, so here's the story of Jephthah in, in a 30-second version. Uh, the story goes like this. Israel's in trouble. God has raised Jephthah up to be a judge, which is essentially a military leader. And Jephthah basically bargains with God and says, hey, if you'll give us a victory, when I go home, the first thing that comes out the door to me, I will sacrifice it to you. Jephthah goes. He has a victory. And what's the first thing that comes out the door to him? Well, it's his daughter, his daughter. And Jephthah says, hey, to his daughter, hey. I have made a terrible vow, but I'm going to keep it. Hey, go and do whatever you want for two months, uh, but come home ready to die, basically. And after uh, a couple months of being away, running through the hills with her friends, uh, she comes back home and Jephthah kills her. And we go, I, you know, I really, you read that the first day and you're like, this has nothing to do with my life. In fact, I don't want anything to do with this sort of a story. I don't want anything to do with this sort of a text. But, if we look, even for one second, one of the things that I found is even a story as horrible as Jephthah is incredibly relevant, especially to like guys like me, like type A hard-charging driver people. Because one of the things that we see in the story of Jephthah is we see a father who accidentally sacrifices his kids on the altar of his own goals and ambitions. Now, how many fathers alive in America today have accidentally sacrificed their own children on the altar of their goals and ambitions. See, the Bible is remarkably relevant. Remarkably relevant. Um, Similarly, another reason that it can be hard to have a life in the scriptures is because we're so easily distracted by entertainment culture. Uh, Now, at this point, I would also like to say this is not about me trying to make you feel guilty because everybody in the room loves People magazine and we love uh, the Kardashians, and we love Hollywood, and we love the NBA Finals. I'm I'm not here to make anybody feel guilty about that. The truth is, I watched probably 15 hours of NBA Finals this week. Loved every minute of it. Going to watch some more this afternoon. It's not about inducing some guilt, but it is about recognizing why we love Hollywood. Why do we love Hollywood? I think one of the reasons that we love Hollywood is because uh, as human beings, we're looking for we're looking for heroes, we're looking for Superman, and we're looking for a compelling story, and we're looking for narratives that speak to our heart. It's the reason why every single year I read, I read one novel every year. Uh, I read A River Runs Through It. I read it every year. Y'all probably seen the movie, right? The movie is amazing. And the novel is incredible. It's the best, I think it's the finest hundred pages of American literature written in the last hundred years. That's just my opinion. But it's, it's unbelievable. But I read it every year. Why? I think we're looking, I think we're so often distracted by Hollywood and certain forms of entertainment because we're looking for this, we we're looking for a hero and we're looking for a compelling story not realizing that some of the most amazing stories are actually in a dusty old book. And so this is the arc of Scripture, that weak, morally suspect people are called into greatness by the grace and mercy of God. One of the things that you and I need is we need imaginations that are soaked in God's story. No guilt here, but one of the things that we need is we need an imagination that has been soaked, shaped, and formed by God's story, specifically Scripture. Uh, And the main reason we need it is because every person in the room is in the process of formation. Everybody is being formed into something. And you're being formed by someone or some things. Uh, The truth is, unless we actively engage in allowing our hearts, our minds, and our imaginations to be formed by God's story, then we will invariably be shaped and formed by someone else's story. So, everyone in the room is either going to be shaped by hollywood 's narrative or we 're going to be shaped by god 's narrative and sometimes the two overlap, but they oftentimes they don 't and This formation is not benign. Some people think that you know things like formation and spiritual spiritual formation is is sort of a benign process it 's actually not because all of our formation uh, processes end up changing how we see ourselves. They end up changing how we see our neighbor, and most importantly, they change how we say how we see God. This is why we need a Bible-soaked imagination, because a Bible-soaked, a Bible-formed, a story-formed imagination ultimately knows what to do when you walk through the valley of the shadow. And by the way, everyone in the room is going to go through the valley of the shadow. And without a scripture-formed without a story-formed imagination, when you get to the valley of the shadow, your history will tell you how to perceive and walk through. People who've been soaked and people whose imaginations have been formed by Scripture, they know what to do when you get to the valley of shadow. What do you do? You fear no evil. But bigger than that, why do you fear no evil? Because God is with me. Because God is with me. And people who have Bible-soaked imaginations, they also know what to do in the valley of dry bones. What do you do in the valley of dry bones? You speak to the bones. You speak to the bones, right? Because people with a Scripture-soaked imagination, with God's story-formed imagination, we know that the worst thing, our worst moments, can change. We know, that resu- we know that resurrection power is always available. We know that there's always another alternative. Always, always, always another alternative. Uh, some of the narratives that are being put on display for us in wider culture, they don't know that. Some of the narratives are, well, it's all just screwed up, so eat, drink, be merry. Get what you can while you can. But God says when you encounter the valley of dry bones, you should speak life. That resurrection power is always available. That nothing is so dead that God couldn't raise it back up to be something amazing. That in the very places where uh, things have died, in the very places where decay has taken hold, in the very places where there seems like there's nothing else left, that there is a possibility that when you speak to it, that God's spirit could hover over it and an army could arise. This is all, this all happens from being a story formed imagination person. Story formed imaginations, they know what to do with giants. What do you do with giants? You go and find a rock. You need to know this. What do you do with giants? And by the way, every single person in the room is going to meet a Goliath, probably going to meet more than one. And you need to know, you've got to go get a rock you got to go get a rock. And I love what David does. David goes down to the stream and he picks up five smooth stones, right? In the scripture, five is the number of grace. He goes down and he makes a withdrawal on the grace of God and he gets a rock and it's a river rock, meaning that it's smooth. So a rock is a hard thing that used to have rough edges, but the spirit of God, the spirit of water, water has moved over it and has formed that rock into a smooth projectile. God wants you to take your hard rough edges places and let the spirit, the places where the spirit has moved over you, that painful place, that hard place, the callous place in your life, he wants you to go and get that and that's what you can take back to kill kill giants with. You'll never get there unless you have a spirit and a story formed scripture soaked imagination. The scripture is always telling us the story at multiple levels. The hard place in your life the place that you wanted to give up on, that's the place where the slow, progressive work of the Spirit is smoothing off all the rough edges and the place where you felt weakest is actually a weapon to kill giants. See, people with a Scripture-informed imagination, they know what to do with giants. See, we need hearts and minds that are familiar with God's favorite themes. You know what God's favorite themes are in the Scripture? Love. Mercy, compassion. Scripture says that mercy triumphs over justice. Mercy triumphs over judgment. That's amazing. These are God's favorite themes. And we need to look for ways in which those themes are intersecting our lives. See, when you see these themes in the scripture, when you see them in the life of David, who is a murderer and an adulterer, you will begin to see them in your own life. You'll begin to see them in your own life. See, here's the danger of not having a story-formed imagination. The danger is that you could live life with God at your right side and not know it. This happens all the time. God is everywhere. He's all the time. He's always present. The trouble is you and I are not always awake to that presence. And if we don't have a story-formed imagination, it's possible to live our lives with God right here and be completely clueless about it. can be completely clueless about it. Uh, you and I could end up settling for another version of the story. Uh, lots of people have settled with the CNN version of the story. Uh, some other people have settled for a get-rich-quick scheme. Uh, other people are settling for the narratives that are being given to us, uh, things, things like um, basically just worldly wisdom. One of the things, unless you have a scripture-soaked imagination, you'll settle for worldly wisdom. Uh, what does worldly wisdom sound like? Oh, it sounds like this. You ever heard someone say, well, uh, it's just business. It's not personal. It's just business, right? Yeah, what do they mean when they say it's just business? What they really mean is, I'm going to cut your head off, I'm going to cut your head off. And the reason I'm going to cut your head off is because I'm looking out for number one. And in business, the main thing that matters is looking out for number one. However, in the scripture, mercy triumphs over judgment. The ends do not justify the means. And in scripture, God likes compassion and he likes mercy more than he likes a profit. And so how you make your money matters. So unless we have a scripture-soaked imagination, we could settle for worldly wisdom we could go to our brothers and sisters in jesus or even other brothers and sisters who haven't fully come into god's house yet and we could look at them and maybe in a business interaction and say real hard like it's just business man we've missed it thinking that we're okay go home justified not even lose one minute of sleep See, we need our imaginations awakened to see God's intersections. We need Moses turning aside to see a burning bush. I would also like to suggest that every person in the room is a Moses and that there are millions, if not billions, of burning bushes. They're everywhere. But without a story-formed imagination, you could walk right past a burning bush settling for the wisdom of the world, it's only business. Another thing that a storied imagination does is that it brings the biblical text into our own lives. We begin to see and learn all the ways that God is writing his story in our own lives. But this requires a way of seeing that only comes from adequate contact with the scripture. So we... As we encounter the scripture, as we begin to get a scripture-soaked imagination, one of the things that happens is, is that the text becomes reborn in my own life, and I begin to see all the ways in which God has woven my life in his, into his greater story. How many of you understand that God's story uh, is in the scripture, but that's not all of his story? That's just a couple thousand years. He's writing a story that's actually much bigger, and so the text is actually going on, and it concludes everybody in the room. But I need to encounter what he has written so that I can see all the ways that he is weaving his narrative into my own life. For instance, I'll just be personal here for a moment. For instance, my name is Adam. I think you all know that. And um, right from the very beginning, um, Adam brings up all kinds of imagery in the scripture. And it actually means a lot to me. Here's why. Well, in the scripture, Adam is not just the first man, but Adam is the guy that God put in the garden. And he said to Adam, I want you to take care of my garden. Name the animals and I want you to take care of it. Adam was primarily, first and foremost, a gardener. that's That's who Adam was. And the very first job that I ever got in my whole life was at Robert's Landscaping at a garden center. Now, by the way, when all of this happened, I'm completely unaware of this, Right? I'm completely unaware. I worked for 10 years in a garden center in greenhouses, planting seeds, growing them up, hours and hours of watering and nurturing. I'm Adam. I'm a gardener. And then when I fell in love and got married, I married a woman named Heather. Do you know what Heather is? Heather's is a small shrub. And our firstborn Our firstborn's name is River. In the Genesis account, where Adam lived, it's full of rivers. And my second born is Seth. Seth was the replacement son of Adam. When Cain killed Abel, Seth was his replacement son. And then I had Magnolia, and Magnolia is a tree. And then I had Rowan, and Rowan is a tree. And I work at a church called The Vineyard. And my family has 13 acres of wine grapes. Now you tell me what the message of my life is. But unless you have a story formed imagination, you'll never see some of the main things that God is saying to you. And by the way, I only became awake and aware to this dynamic of who I am and how God has arranged my life. I only became awake at that six months ago. No clue. Heaven are making choices along the way. We're naming our children. We're choosing to love one another and to be married. Uh, We chose jobs. All of these things. And God is arranging and he is tying my story back into this bigger narrative. And he is saying to me over and over again, Adam, you're a gardener. I want you to garden and I want you to nurture people and I I want you to have your hands in the dirt. And by the way, I'm happiest when I am planting a garden That's when I'm absolute happiest. When I'm outside and I'm planting a garden, I've always been like a landscape design person. Yeah, God is saying to me over and over again, you're you're a gardener, you're a nurturer. I want you to garden, I want you to nurture, and I want you to grow up people, and I want you to garden, nurture, and grow up plants. I want you to do that. And by the way, this isn't unique to me. This is every single person in the room. But you need a story-formed imagination to be able to get there. See, it's the biblical story and an awakened imagination that causes us to be alive to what God's doing in our lives. See, biblical Adam, he's not far away. To me, he's really close. I feel like I already know him. And finally, loving the scriptures and having a story-formed imagination invites you and I to place our trust in God. Everybody in here knows that we're supposed to place our trust in God. That's basic, that's basic Christian stuff, right? Have faith in God. Well, it works like this. If we move away from the Bible just being a rule book, and if we move away from the Bible being, being instructions or some holy book, uh, if, we, if we begin to approach it as story, trusting in God actually becomes more, to me, tangible, something I can grab onto. It, it, for me, it works like this. If God was good to Jacob, who was a thief, and a robber, and a liar, and a cheater, he'll be good to me. That's the basis of the goodness of God. If he was kind to Jacob, I can assure you he'll be kind to you. If he was faithful to David, an adulterer, and a murderer, he'll be faithful to me. See, the scriptures over and over again, they declare the goodness and the faithfulness of God. And not only that, but there's another level of trust that is being invited for you and I. And it's the level of trust that comes from you and I becoming aware and awake to the fact that God is the author. And every good author has, when they set out to make a story, they have a beginning, a middle, and an end. This is just basic story stuff. And so if you and I begin to see that he was good at the beginning, and if we can pay attention to the fact that he has been good in the middle, we can can rest... See, trust is not trying to grab something. It's just, it's resting in who God is. We can be assured and know that God will be good in the end. Some of us have eschatologies. Eschatologies are just, a, eschatology is a fancy word for like basically end time stuff, the end, right? Some of us have eschatologies where, where God ends up at the end being a much different person than he was in the beginning. It's bogus, if he was good to Jacob, he'll be good to you. And not only that, but he'll be good in the future. Some of us have an eschatology where Jesus is returning, and it's the Jesus who's returning is like radically different than the Jesus who came the first time. I'm here to tell you, that stuff's garbage. Absolute garbage. Jesus is not a murderer. He is the guy who lays down his life. This is the sort of thing that comes from a story-formed imagination. He's the author. He's got a beginning, a middle, and the end, and he's been good through all of it. He'll be good at the very, very end. And this is where some of his biggest glory exists for me. People talk about the glory of God. Here's something that really, for me, displays the glory of God. Um, He's an author, he's the author of this amazing story, uh, and he's the genius. Uh, And he has written you and I into the text. Uh, You are not written into the margins. You are written into the center. You're one of the main characters. But you've also been written into the center of his story along with billions of other people who are alive right now and billions of other people who have been alive through history. But his characters are not robots, meaning that he has given real free choice and real free will to every single person meaning that your actions and your choices they have consequences and they change things in the future and somehow the god who is the author of the story who gave his characters power to choose things things that changed the outcomes of of other events in the future somehow he is able to take billions of people with trillions of choices and keep the story on track that's where the glory of god exists That's amazing. No one is a robot. No one is an automaton. But he is arranging the story. People sometimes do things that he didn't have in his copy. Yet he works through people's choices to bring about the ending that he has in mind. And when the story is complete, everyone in the universe will be stunned at its power and its telling. So a few final thoughts. You might want to write these down for the week. Especially if you grew up like I did, where Bible was like just guilt. The scriptures are not an instruction manual. The scriptures are not a rule book. The scriptures are a story. If you go looking for answers, you're going to find people. The scriptures are a story. And God has written you and I into the text and in order to engage with that you and I need a storied imagination the author is good and the end will be amazing amen 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 hey if we've got some people on the ministry team this morning why don't you come on up power team it's good hey uh, before we before we let go and and I pray for you guys uh, anybody in the room having issues with their right eye I felt like when I got up this morning okay we want to pray for you as soon as I got up to speak this morning I felt like the Lord said he wanted to heal our right eye awesome not that you have a bad right eye but we we want to pray for you hey why don't the rest of you guys stand up and uh, why don't you put your hand on your heart Father, would you awaken our imaginations? God, would you give us a love for the scripture that is free from guilt and a sense of duty? God, we ask that you would awaken hunger in our hearts and in our minds for your word. And Father, we ask that you would, that you would give us freedom from religious guilt. God, we ask that you would give us freedom from religious duty. God, we ask that you would give us freedom from any notion of reading the Bible so that we can keep you happy. And God, we ask that you would, that you would give us um, a new view, that you would show us uh, your word as as a story. God, we ask that you would, that you would show us all the ways in which you are also tying our lives into your biblical text. Father, all the ways that you have sown the characters in the Bible into our own life. God, all the ways that you have sown events back and forth, all the ways that you have foreshadowed one thing in the Scripture and highlighted it in our life. Father, I ask that you would give every person in the room a Bible-formed imagination. And we ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Hey, if you need prayer for anything, come, up, come on up this morning. Uh, we've got some people here who want to pray for you. Otherwise, give somebody a high five and a hug. Amen.